If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than 4 billion in company approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loises. I'm joined today by Crunchbase News' Alex Wilhelm. Hello. Hello. And Nico Bonazzos, a managing director at General Catalyst. Hello. Excited to be here. <laughs> Excited to have you, Nico. Before we do the topics, what does that mean, managing director? It, is it like general partner, but just different words? Or is yeah. it different? Okay. So same, same thing. Same legal owner of uh, the funds that we raise. Okay. I, I always want to make sure that I understand what everyone's job title is. The venture world's <laughs> opaque, and you know it's true. And the nomenclature does mean different things at different firms. But general catalyst nowadays is pretty, yeah. everybody's a partner, so who cares? Exactly, well, everyone dir- is a partner. Director sounds better than partner. Director sounds like <laughs> I'm going to run... call myself a partner too. <laughs> <laughs> Connie Loises, tech partner. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry for derailing the show. Let's begin. No, no, that's fine. So I think we wanted to talk today about Peloton. Yes. So we want to talk about Peloton because it's a very interesting company that is interviewing banks right now, reportedly, for roles in an IPO. Now, this is a maker of video streaming stationary exercise bikes. Anybody in the room have one? Uh, I do not. Nico? I don't have one, but I've tried them. I have a lot of friends who have them. They're obsessed with them. You know, It's unbelievable. That's what I hear, too. Like People like Ed Zetron have one. All they do is just bike on it all the time. I don't get why they're so addicted, but I guess it's healthy. So People love uh, taking care of their health and fitness. And if you're in New York and now the weather is really sh- right. shitty. Right, who um, wants to go to a club? Who wants to get out of their home? And the content has gone very, very, very good. Uh, so that's particularly compelling with this business. I think that's something that, so I don't have one. My husband drops hints all the time. <laughs> I think we're going to end up with something at some point. But um, I, apparently the content is sort of the secret sauce. So I was reading about how people just become so attached to their instructors who are being streamed to them. There's one um, instructor, I think her name is maybe Arzon, and she has 200,000 Instagram followers. So they're sort of like little celebrities in this well, community. There's a, that There's a soul cycle. Um, uh, comparable here, right? Because SoulCycle individual instructors get cult followings in big markets and they have people that follow in there. So it's kind of a similar idea, I presume. So it's like micro sports celebrities that are aimed at making you move as opposed to watching other people do all the work. Um, but they're going to go public because they're quite large now. And we pulled some numbers on this. And according to various media reports that we compiled, they did about $400 million in revenue in 2017. And for their current fiscal year, I don't know exactly when that ends, about seven hundred million in revenue is the expectation. So seventy five percent growth year over year. Yeah, and that makes sense because so the bikes are about two thousand. Although they think they say with um per, sort of add ons, it's like two thousand two hundred fifty to two two thousand seven hundred. And they've sold I think four hundred thousand plus of these. What would be interesting to know is how much they're spending on creating the bikes. I was thinking if they spend like five hundred dollars on a bike, which it's got to be more than that. You know they they have their costs are high. They have their they design the hardware, the software. They're training the instructors. Um, I didn't realize this, but they've opened 70 brick-and-mortar locations across the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. They're building a 35,000-square-foot space in Manhattan in the fall, I guess, to house That'll several fitness studios. Yeah, so they're spending a ton of money. Um, so, 
but they have everyone's favorite thing in the world, which is a high margin recurring subscription business that's attached to it. So after you pay the privilege of $2,300, $2,500 for this bike, you get to pay $39 a month to Peloton for all the lovely video streaming stuff. And so I bet there's a lot of margin there to be used. So my question is, when we eventually see this S1, presuming that it all goes well, are they driving margin on the hardware side? Or is that a break-even entry point for the subscription part of the business where they drive most of the margin? It depends on how you want to approach it. I don't know which is more aggressive, but I like that there's at least two parts to this company. But the problem is from outside, if it's a two-part business, harder to see which cut of the revenue is from which. So I don't know if it's a super amazing business or just a pretty good one. Let's ask the VC. What good do you point, think? Nico. So, so, Nico, have you looked at this company? Has the General Catalyst ever... Um, we have, but I have not personally. Okay. And I spend most of my time on the early stage uh, side of the business. Uh, but Peloton is a phenomenon. It's like a definite consumer phenomenon that has captivated the hearts and minds of um, so many consumers. Uh, always hardware is very hard because you have to deal with inventory, defects, returns. You have to deal with putting in more capital uh, into the next generation of the product right. that you want to develop. Um, the cycles are longer. Um, however, here the predictability of the revenue that they have from the media business and with the subscription is, is quite, quite compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, when they spend money on their fitness, they've made such a large purchase, and then they feel this sense of guilt, mm -hmm. uh, which is it's like you know buying a gym subscription. So right. it's kind of harder, you know, to cancel it, even if you actually, you know, uh, have committed to it because you don't want to be doing something bad for your health. Right. Um, here, people love the product, from what I'm hearing, without knowing, you know, any details about the company, of course. Uh, and then you have it in your living room; you see it every <laughs> single day. Right. Uh, so that's hard, you know, to forget about it. Um, <laughs> you're not doing it alone. Mm -hmm. Like from my circle of friends, people do it. Their partners do it. They're competing with each other. The content has gone so good, so you can do kind of competitions with other people or take classes with other people. So all that stuff is like very, 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 very compelling. So. I would assume the the the, the retention and uh, and churn rates are going to be pretty healthy. Yeah, I'd be interested. The in price knowing, point is always you know. I was going to ask. So the price point, do you think it needs to go down, or I wonder even if it would go up? I mean, I I do sort of wonder who they are targeting. I mean, we're yeah. seeing sort of newer offers in the market that are even more expensive, like Tonal, this weight training system that's I think maybe four thousand. Yeah, there's Peloton. so many of these now. Yeah, I yeah. mean, e even even Peloton, um, from what I've seen, they have the treadmill, which right. is going to be you know the most amazing one of all time. <laughs> Olympians are going to be using it to train themselves. It's and that's it's also $4,000. Yeah, it's it's going to be like, I don't know, the, the Tesla of all tre oh, right, treadmills right. or something. Because that's what we were lacking in the market really was another treadmill. Um, but there's also <laughs> a company called uh, Mirror, if I recall correctly, right, that right, does right. a exercise mirror that you dance in front of. People give that a lot of flack for being like narcissistic or whatever, as if there are no mirrors in gyms as it is. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's I mean has, right. have those people never been to a gym? Uh, I think it's awesome. I think a lower price point would be interesting. I wonder how much uh, demand for Peloton is cachet. And the idea, I mean, like think about Nico's friend group and their average mm -hmm. net worth versus mm -hmm. mine. Mm -hmm. And think about how many of his friends have one versus mm -hmm. mine. Mm -hmm. There's a pretty big jump there. Right, right, right. And so it's kind of like the cool rich kids. Most of my friends are seed stage founders. What are you talking about? <laughs> Any seed stage founder who has a Peloton uh, probably already had some money. I In think. this market, they probably all have Pelotons. But um, what's interesting is the company does have a defense against this widespread perception that this is for the you know elite moneyed whatever uh, which is that you can just download the app which oh, okay. I I think 
I should do. I would sort of just be interested in, in taking a look at it. But that's apparently like, I don't know, maybe just $39 a month, which is the standard app. Also, uh, this, the company Smartly has a financing plan. Oh, really? So I think you can pay $58 a, a month over maybe like 40 months. Um, and so they sort of say, look, it's the same that you'd be paying for a gym membership anyway. So now you get, you know. That actually makes it pretty darn affordable because yeah. gyms can usually cost 60 a month or mm-hmm. 70 a month. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyways, yeah, the, the, other, the other thing about it is like um, if, if you have uh, a Peloton, you can do it at home. You don't need, you know, to hop on an Uber to get to your gym. Uh, you can do it whenever you want. Uh, it could replace part of the sessions that you're doing with a trainer. Right. It's a good family activity to do. It has a lot of positive mm-hmm. uh, externalities in, in, in many ways. Um, of course, the pricing is aspirational today. It's mm-hmm. not for everybody. Uh, I could see a future where they have like a tiered pricing, like the same way that car companies, you know, like Tesla right. have done it before. Uh, or maybe you could buy a used Peloton when they come up with their new newest. You could uh, buy version. used, <laughs> yeah. You could buy a used Peloton, or you know, when they, whenever they come with the new version, you yeah. could buy the older one, right. like how Apple does it with sure. the old uh, iPhone models, thing, yeah. right? Yeah. That's the other example. Uh, however, at, at these price points, and given the subscription component, you don't need to sell like many millions of them in order to have a very very good business. You don't right. need to do that. Well, we will find out more when we get that S one uh, after they hire these bankers. It's going to be a fun year for IPOs. Like I know, I know we've been looking forward to this for a long time, but I feel like it's actually going to happen this year. The government's not going to close, for example. The SEC will stay open. People can file. It's going to be good. Well, you know, one thing. I mean, we are going to talk about other I know companies that have filed today, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Nico. You know, a Jim Cramer. I don't watch his show Mad Money, but he was he made an interesting point earlier this week, which was that he was sort of wondering whether the market can support so many new companies coming in. He was like, are people going to be selling Atlassian to buy Slack? Or, you know, I, I thought it was sort of an interesting point. Is that something that you have given any thought to? I, I haven't thought much about it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's so much money out there. Like, it's it's insane. And the U.S. is perceived as a safe harbor for anybody who invests, other, uh, wants to invest or get the capital right mm-hmm. now. Also, Technology is perceived as a high-growth uh, industry. Uh, so unless something fundamental changes, these perceptions can provide us with pretty good runway. Yeah, money will still flow also, into the I public market. The the float of these companies that are going to go public this year isn't going to be huge. I don't think I don't think there's a lack of like available capital for it. Is, the question is: Is the money interested in these IPOs also already invested in high-growth tech companies? I would say sure, but there's probably a lot more money laying around. People are so desperate for yield. They're putting piles of extra money into private equity and all sorts of things. This is probably an easier way to, to generate some returns. No, exactly. And then the other thing is a lot of the companies that are going to go public are consumer-facing again. Mm-hmm. And whenever that happens, um, customers and users of these companies get excited to own a piece of them. Right. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Kind of the Etsy effect, you could say. Right. Yeah, or what happened with Facebook back in the day or, you know, uh, even Snap and, like, you know, Uber going public. I'm sure a lot of Uber customers may be thinking about it. Yeah. Maybe you can buy shares in the app on demand. I'm kidding. That's not going to happen. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. All right. uh, Let's move along to Postmates. Now, this, instead of being a possible filing, is something that filed uh, privately uh, last week. And they said in a statement that the size and price of their offering will be kind of to be determined. So we'll hear about that later on. And uh, right before we got on the show, we were actually looking up their last funding round. And I think it was 
early July of this year. Uh, January, right. Sorry, early I, right. It's actually in February. Tired. It's not in the future. It's in the past. <laughs> and that's why I get paid to do a podcast. All right. Uh, <laughs> in January of this year, they raised $100 million at, right. a, I think it was a $1.75 billion, or roughly $1.8 billion valuation. Something like that, right. Right in there. Um, picking up a lot more money for the delivery space. And it's a very crowded space because talking about Uber, we all know that Uber Eats is supposed to be this uh, very dynamic growth business, even for Uber, which is already a growth business. So to see more money going to Postmates is very interesting, especially towards an IPO. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. The space is just so crowded. So um, Postmates raises this huge round last month with uh, BlackRock and Tiger Global um, participating. Um, but this week, um, DoorDash is reportedly one another. You know, in addition to Uber Eats, DoorDash is a huge competitor, and they are reportedly raising a five hundred million dollar round at a six billion dollar valuation. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I don't know if there's sort of a, a, a race um, going on, or there's just you know, like you know, everyone sort of sees infinite you know market share to be grabbed and. Um, but it's it's certainly interesting that everyone's sort of I, well, you know, Nico. I would also be interested in your thoughts on why DoorDash is raising privately instead of going public. I mean, this is I think seen as the bigger company, so Postmates needs the money. DoorDash doesn't, or what do you what do you think is going on here? Everybody in this category needs the money because mm-hmm. what what everybody's trying to do is take advantage of how quickly this market is expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably that's uh, something that uh, a lot of us did not expect back in the day, but there are four players now, Grubhub, Simlas, um, Postmates, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. Okay. Uh, all of them are growing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Grubhub and Simlas are losing markets here, but if you check out their uh, stock price, it's, it's done you know, pretty well mm-hmm. um, uh, over the last you know, year or so. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to see that I don't know people stop cooking at home or they got over the blue apron stuff that we're doing before. Everybody cares about just food delivery because they're uh, lazy. Uh, with the partnerships that uh, these companies have done, in particular DoorDash and Uber Eats, mm-hmm. um, they're taking money with from the restaurants too. So maybe you know they're offering better deals uh, to the end users. So it's really interesting, you know, what's going on in that space. This is a very an ever expanding market. I want to talk about that more. By expanding market, you mean the total addressable market for food delivery itself is expanding. So as these companies are growing, the actual market category into which they sell is expanding, which is where you want to be as a growth stage company. Of course. Right. So fewer people are going to restaurants, more people are ordering out. But but it, you know, I don't. I'll be interested to see everyone's numbers. Like DoorDash, for example, I talked to another software company in New York. It sells sort of point of sale software to restaurants. But but it also works as a funnel for DoorDash, but it's also taking a bit of the revenue. So there's sort of, I feel like there's probably like revenue splits that we're not aware of. Also, these companies aren't just competing with each other. They're also interestingly competing now with sort of self-driving cars or they they will in the future. I mean, in, in fact- they, uh, they have to, right? Because one of their biggest costs they have is a labor cost. Right. Uh, just like with Uber. So just with, like with Uber, yeah. But in, in many ways, you know, in the case of Uber, one of the most interesting things is the two partnerships they did with McDonald's and uh, with Starbucks. Okay. I and, and, and basically, you know, for Uber, um, it's essentially the equivalent of um, juicing up their marketing acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. Like every order uh, that somebody uh, does with Uber Eats for a McDonald's burger, mm-hmm. I'm sure Uber loses money, but uh, it's probably cheaper for Uber to um, serve that order rather than uh, pay money in the App Store on Facebook to acquire that new customer. Right. That is super interesting. That seems like such a counterintuitive partnership. Like, 
ordering a McDonald's hamburger and having it delivered by a car. It's only counterintuitive until those hot fries arrive in your apartment at 9.30 p.m. when <laughs> right, it's raining like, and you are the happiest kid <laughs> at school. So I didn't know that I was costing Uber money every time I ordered uh, Uber Eats from McDonald's. I think I've bankrupted them by now. Is that right? Oh, for sure. That it, is it so is, interesting. It is the uh, ultimate guilty pleasure. You can follow, pull up your phone while watching Netflix and be like, I would like 88 chicken tenders now. <laughs> and then you wait like 28 minutes and there's a McDonald's near my house in SF and so the food just arrives. Uber Eats has, has changed my life entirely in the area because I just I do not cook in SF period anymore. Um, that was a lot of confessions on the air in a row. <laughs> so uh, I want to pause and, 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 and talk about Postmates itself for a second going okay. back a little okay. bit. Uh, they are going public we think because they probably need the money which is interesting because a lot of IPOs that have happened or may happen this year are from companies like Slack that have a lot of cash. Well, everybody needs the money in, this, in category this category because they are so aggressive about growing their market share and going after other cities. Why is Postmates going public and why is DoorDash turning again to a private market investor, which is a, a reportedly Tomasek, a Singapore Yeah, we're not investors in any of these two companies. But, but obviously, obviously, you know, like the... If you can raise, you know, capital from private from the private market to the terms you want, like in a couple of days or a couple of weeks, sometimes you do it. Yeah. Postmates has raised a number of rounds from a lot of other people. I'm sure they have opportunities right now in the private markets, but uh, they may want to find uh, exit for some of the um, earlier investors. They may also be concerned that they're not, you know, the biggest player in the space. And if you go public first. Uh, your name, you know, gets there. The markets are doing right. well right now, and GrabHub has done pretty well. So why miss the window of opportunity to do it? It's interesting. I also sort of wonder how much of the company the founders and early employees own at this point. These companies have raised so much money, and they're actually sort of fairly young. So, so they've raised a lot of money, but always with the founders and the executives that are doing well, you can re-up them over time. Mm-hmm. And That's I'm sure they're also... Uh, performance-based uh, new equity grants that mm-hmm. have been uh, given to them. The other thing that happened with Postmates a couple of years ago, uh, when Founders Fund invested in them, they wiped out the preferred uh, status of all the previous investors. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you guys reported it a couple of years ago. So, like, anybody who did, you know, seed, series A, series B, etc., all these folks are common shareholders. So... In essence, you know, the only major preferred shareholders of Postmates are uh, Founders Fund and Tiger Global and, uh, and whoever, you know, Black like, uh, invested in, in the yeah, last yeah. round. Interesting. I, I don't remember that. Well, I like uh, the CEO of Postmates, Bastian, and I, I bring him up because Postmates used to be based literally next door to the building we're in right now. We're over here at TechCrunch HQ, and they were next door, and Bastian had this really amazing cardboard cutout of Angela Merkel. That I really coveted because Boston, I think, is German. And uh, I asked him if I could have it, and he told me no. So since then, I've been off the Postmates tip. But uh, I, I got to say, it's cool to see companies that you've known for a long time do well. I know that's Nico's job, but it's not mine. But it is still kind of fun to see. Absolutely. And Bastian is like a phenomenal individual. Like this company got the marketing right. They got some of the most interesting and uh, hardest to get restaurants on the platform. His perseverance and probably, you know, the German background has helped him. <laughs> operationally intensive business. Well, also, they've avoided uh, what's been sort of a scandal in the space this week on yes. uh, tipping. Um, I don't really know how Postmates operates. I don't know if anybody talked to him about it, but DoorDash lets, you know, its customers pay uh, to some extent for its drivers. So the more the drivers or the more the customers pay, essentially, there's sort of some, some sort of algorithm. They pay the drivers less. Yeah. 
And this was true of Insta, I'm sorry, Instacart as well. But Instacart was sort of shamed into uh, changing that policy, I yes. think, early this week. The the thing is, people thought that if you tipped your Instacart, uh, Instacarter, I'm sure they have a cute name for it, or your DoorDash, DoorDasher. Dasher, yeah. Dasher, there we go. I knew that had to be some sort of term. Uh, people thought that that tip was additional to the mm-hmm. fee that they mm-hmm. were going to get for doing the delivery. So mm-hmm. if you tip them extra money for being prompt or great or just for doing the thing, uh, they would get extra money. It turned out that that wasn't the case. And so that tip would then go to their standard flat rate. And the more you tipped, essentially you were kind of covering the DoorDash or Instacart fee, so far as I understand it, to that person for that order. Uh, and people were very cross about this because they felt like their tips were actually just subsidizing the company itself as opposed to supporting the worker doing the labor. And uh, Instacart, as we said, roughly, and this gets kind of folded on it, DoorDash has gone the other way and said, no, this is cool. We're going to keep doing it. Uh, I, I'm not going to use DoorDash if they're going to, if they're going to do operate in that way. Just personally, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's good business. And if your business doesn't work, if you can't pay your workers or only works, if you don't, then your business is terrible. And, and well, Amazon also has, has the same policy, I think, and is, is also not changing it. Well, Amazon is big enough to not care because we all can't live without Amazon. I mean, right. try that for a week. But uh, at a minimum, here we can vote with our people. I would say, you know, from um, having worked with other on-demand companies, uh, at some point, you know, like the workers um, make enough complaints or you start seeing um, having issues with your supply side. Mm. And uh, you have to pay attention to this stuff right. because if the supply side is not sticking around and uh, they're not productive, it's going to hit the overall uh, profitability of the business. So it, it's unfortunate that this is happening. I wouldn't say that DoorDash is a bad business. Uh, they've grown really quickly. They have a lot of partnerships with a ton of food chains. Um, hopefully they, could, they can figure something out with the worker side of the house, which is frankly, you know, powering the whole business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the thing that I think we're, we're going to see maybe some changes in over time is the state of the labor market. And if you look at uh, unemployment through a more broad lens than just who is currently unemployed, look at people that are partially attached or have only part-time work but want full-time work, there's still a lot of slack in the labor market, which is why these gig economy companies have always had access to people to come and take these jobs that have I don't know, issues like we're talking about today. And uh, if the economy keeps expanding and doing well, that will become increasingly less slack and there will be fewer people and probably even more slots in all these gig economy focused companies, at which point I think Nico's argument comes into play that then it's going to get more competitive in terms of what these people can earn and so forth. But I think the slackness in the labor market is part of the puzzle we're seeing uh, play on the on-demand space. And then on the other side of that, all of us lazy people who uh, don't want to leave our house to get food. Which brings us to Neuro, which raised $940 million. Yes. Neuro is interesting. I had not heard of Neuro until this week. What is a Neuro? A Neuro is a company that is just a couple of years old, was founded by a couple of guys who came from Google's self-driving effort uh, before it was Waymo and you know Waymo had spun oh, so out of the early. Alpha. These are yeah, these are guys who've been you know sort of you know pioneers on this front, I guess, um, and they are doing two things. So they're building these delivery robot cars that are apparently like half the size of compact sedans, but when you open the doors, there's no person there. It's uh, like a compartment for food. They're they're um, charging five ninety five to de- deliver to deliver groceries. 
Uh, what's interesting about this company is it sort of appeared on my radar, and I think a lot of other people's this week, because it raised $940 million in one round uh, from SoftBank's Vision Fund. We love talking about SoftBank's Vision on here. Do we? we love- do, do we go? <laughs> I do. We had enough. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, you it's, know, constantly- it's it's really cool that they're raising a billion bucks of funding. Um, most you companies really aspire cool? to become a unicorn. <laughs> These guys uh, became a unicorn it. just for their bank account, right? Well, I mean, they've only built six of these cars, so they've it's incredible. Built six? They've built six of these cars. They're valued at two point seven billion dollars. The money is so that they can build more cars. But what I think is interesting is I see something playing out here where it's like these guys who were at Google self-driving uh, uh, effort before we get <laughs> with Waymo um, are going up against each other. So this just happened. But last week, Aurora Technology, co-founded by Chris Urmson, who was um, sort of like the lead guy there, one of the project leads, he started his company two years ago with a hot shot from Uber and a hot shot from Tesla. They raised a bunch of money and, and they have more in common than you would think. Aurora is not creating robot delivery cars yet, but it's uh, delivering, um, it's working on a sort of self-driving technology that's going to it's going to sell to car manufacturers and neuro has said it's it's working on these robot cars but it's also developing software that it might sell to car manufacturers so they might actually be very much competing directly with each other okay two things one okay. very excited about the amount of money going into this space mm-hmm. i know i'm usually a cynical jerk but in this case i think it's great it's a huge problem it's a human issue we can make the world literally better and safer cut emissions and have better traffic great uh, part two of that is remember back in like 1999, these big acquisitions and they'd say they're valued at like $2,000 per eyeball back when that meant uh, MAU or monthly active visitor, whatever the metric was uh, at $2.7 billion mm-hmm. and a, uh, and six <laughs> delivery vehicles. They are valued at $450 million per robot delivery car, which yeah, I feel even for 2019 is it's a, a little rich. bit rich. Right, right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's the, the delivery cars, but also they're really working on, on the software on the side. I'm excited about it. And also, if you put things in perspective, when DM bought crews for a billion bucks, mm. it sounds like a bargain now, right? Right, right, right. Absolutely. Well, uh, well also, I didn't uh, mention that Aurora, uh, uh, when it raised that round last week, it wasn't just Sequoia who led it, but Amazon was a significant participant. And of course, Amazon wants to figure out self-driving, you know, autonomous delivery. So uh, you can sort of see Aurora powering that potentially at some point. Absolutely. The the other part that's um, very interesting to me is the talent aggregation that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like how many phenomenal uh, machine learning uh, autonomous vehicle engineers are out there. Yeah. There are not that many. <laughs> and they like, all have their own companies. All these companies, <laughs> all of them want to be founders right. in the first place, sure. right? Uh, and I'm sure there is a fair amount of recycling that's going on. <laughs> like uh, I, I join Cruise and then I go to the next one or get three, four offers yeah. and I play them against each other. Like that, that's that, that. There's probably a limit, you know, to this that talent pool. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like Tesla probably wants to like lock everybody inside the building <laughs> at the end of the night because th- those guys are must be. Or is, is there anybody left at Waymo? I, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. like maybe we should be reaching out to them on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so just to underscore that point, this morning I think it was in uh, Fortune's term sheet newsletter, kind of a classic of the Silicon Valley newsletter game. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another deal for a company called Too Simple. T U Simple which is a China-based developer of, quote, autonomous driving tech that raised a $95 million well, Series D. I have to say that was reported on by our own Kirsten Korosak of TechCrunch oh. and referenced by Dan in the newsletter. Just, uh, to, give, just to give her... Well, in that case, <laughs> I, I, I did not mean to to uh, retweet the reblog of the TechCrunch story, <laughs> but that's what happened. My point is there's yes, an, even another, another round, company. a Series D yes. at a $1.1 billion right, valuation. Right, right. So there is apparently an infinite number of founders available. 
um, which is pretty exciting. I want this to work. And if you see the market caps of the car companies, even now that the stock market is uh, at an all-time high, they're not like super, super, super high. So maybe these companies get acquired over time from the tech businesses. Oh, so the reverse takeover. Yeah. Uh, maybe if Amazon wants to buy them, these valuations would be justified. Yeah, right, right, but if yeah. a car company that's worth 20, 30 billion bucks needs to part ways with, I don't know, 10, 20 percent of their market cap for a company that has made six vehicles, that's harder sell, right? I'm doing some quick math on the show, which I promised I wouldn't do anymore. No, that's fine. Uh, so Ford's worth 32, 33 billion right now. GM is worth 54, call it 90. Apple could buy them three times over in cash combined. So, okay, I see your point. They're actually just not that expensive in tech terms. All right. Um, <laughs> well, that's what you get with lower Sold. margin, more cyclical revenue, everybody. You get a lower revenue multiple. Um, <laughs> and actually, can I segue that to our last topic about SaaS? Yes. Excellent. Please do. All right. Uh, capping off this Your show, favorite topic. My, fa- <laughs> my second favorite topic, SaaS IPOs are my favorite topic. SaaS in general is my second favorite. Um, capping off the show of a lot of superlatives, big numbers, softbank vision fund, shenanigans and whatnot. I want to throw in some public market numbers here. Uh, SaaS is doing really well again, which is a surprise. If you remember the December time period, we were all saying, "Mad, this is it. The stock market's tumbling. Tech is going to be slashed. All the big five tech companies lost a couple hundred billion in value. It, it was rough, but if you look at the Bessemer Cloud Index, which they now run with NASDAQ, uh, I think it was earlier this week it set new highs that were record for the right? history of, wow. the, uh, of the index, which means that things are essentially as best as they ever have been for public uh, SaaS companies. And I was also digging through the same uh, Bessemer data, and according to them, uh, the va- the enterprise multiple of its revenue for those companies had risen to over 10. So they were worth essentially – they're Enterprise values were over 10x their revenue. Is and that what is that? Is that good, bad? Very, rich? very high, okay. very rich. So if you go back in time to Fred Wilson from uh, Union Square Partners or Ventures, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, in 2011, he wrote that public SaaS companies might be worth 5x this year's revenue and 4x next year's. And private uh, SaaS companies would be worth a little bit less because they're less liquid. Now, public SaaS companies are worth 10x their revenue, which is twice what he expected. And so we're at this kind of golden moment for SaaS. I just wanted to market because I'm worried that people don't realize how good this is for these companies and that it won't always be this good. There won't always be another half billion from the Vision Fund hanging around. Or if you're a SaaS company, you won't get this multiple uh, always. I I would say that a lot of the most ambitious uh, private company SaaS founders have realized that. They're raising big rounds. Um, All of these companies are raising a follow-on round every six or nine months at a much higher uh, multiple than 10x. So yeah. would be excited if it was only 10x um, <laughs> most of the times, but a lot of times it's 20, 30, really? 40 yeah. time. Well, if you're private, you're growing more quickly on a percentage basis, so you have a higher multiple. But to have a large basket of public SaaS stocks have an aggregate revenue multiple or enterprise revenue multiple of 10x, 10.2x was just, that's that's crazy to me, given the unprofitability of most of those companies and their decelerating percentage revenue growth. And, and just how uncertain the market seemed as of three weeks ago. I mean, again, it's it's crazy. It's really amazing. It's a golden time. In Q1 2016, there was a moment in time when a lot of these uh, SaaS companies, they lost a ton of their market share. The private market followed afterwards. But hey, it rebounded very, very quickly. And look where we are now. That was so a famous SaaS crash. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> so quickly that I don't remember it. But anyway, <laughs> we, <laughs> we have to get going. Nico, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Alex, I always love seeing you. Good luck. We're living the good times, so thank you. <laughs> and we'll see everybody else next week. 
All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Thank you.